Please take your Bible and turn with me again to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter three, uh, verses eight through twelve. We are uh, in a section of the letter where Peter is giving uh, practical counsel on living for Christ in a less than ideal world, living for Christ in a fallen world, and he wants us to follow Jesus' example. Remember the imagery he used when he was speaking to household servants, of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And so he has reminded us uh, just before this that uh, as Christians we are strangers and exiles here. Uh, a people who, who live here but don't really belong because we live by the convictions and the practices of, of another realm, of another kingdom. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And today we, we pick it up in, in verse 8, which summarizes Peter's teaching. Where now he is speaking, remember he's spoken to household servants, he's spoken to citizens, Christians living in the Roman Empire prior to that, and then to husbands and wives. And now in the, these verses he's speaking to the entire Christian community. If you glance over the, the passage, you'll notice Peter focuses on Christian conduct in three directions. In verse 8, he speaks to us about how we live toward one another as fellow Christians, how we live in the household of faith. And then in verse 9, he, he speaks about how we live toward unbelievers, how we live toward the world. Okay, so how we live toward one another, how we live toward the world, and then in verses 10 through 12, how we live toward God. Peter takes what he said in verses 8 and 9 and, and brings it into the larger context of living before God in relation to him. So that's, that's our outline for this morning, living toward one another, living toward the world, and living toward God. Uh, before we read our passage, let's pause for a moment and pray and ask for God's help. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray now that by the Spirit of Christ, you would help us to be good readers and good listeners of your word. We, we pray that as your word is read and insofar as it is faithfully preached, that we would receive it for what it truly is, the very word of God. Help us to submit all of our lives uh, to it. And we pray that as we listen and receive your word, that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and follow after him. It's in his name we pray, amen. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Let's hear God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Last week I uh, glanced at an an article online, and uh, the, the title of the article went something like, America is divided over everything except division. (laughs) And uh, within the article, they cited a poll that said somewhere between 70 to 80% of Americans believe that the country is deeply divided. Uh, it's, It's no shocker to hear that we, in many ways, are in a gridlock when it comes to to social issues, to economic issues, to political issues. And and that's all because of a a more uh, deep ideological divide. And we've seen in the last couple of years that the church here in the States has has felt the tension of uh, those divisions in our country and sadly at times has even reflected the divisiveness of the days in which we find ourselves. And at the same time, I think we are also witnessing an increase, a gradual increase of opposition to basic historic Christian beliefs and practices. And so all of that, with all of that in mind, I, I think it's important for us to recognize up front that Peter's instruction here is a timely word for us. In divisive times and in the face of opposition to the gospel, what are the, what are the Christian virtues, what are the Christian characteristics that are needed to sustain Christian community? How, how are we going to bear witness to the world about what God's grace does as he saves his people for himself. And how are we to respond to opposition in a way that honors the Lord? Peter is answering those sorts of questions in this passage. So let's let's turn to the first thing I said in verse 8, how we live toward one another. Take a look again at what Peter says. Finally... So he's wrapping up this discussion. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now you notice Peter lists five qualities and virtues to sustain, which are needed to sustain Christian community, Christian fellowship. Notice the commanding force of Peter's words up front. These are things we are to have. These are things that are to mark our communal life 
together as the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, so these are things we are being called to pursue, things we are being called to cultivate and to maintain. And the first thing Peter lists here is unity of mind. Now step back for a minute and recognize what Peter is doing here. Remember, he's, he is writing to Christian communities, Christian churches spread throughout Asia Minor, made up of people from all different walks of life. You have men and women, uh, boys and girls. You have Greeks and Jews. You have slaves and, and free people. There's a diversity among the body. And there is a diversity among the body because Jesus calls and embraces a variety of people and welcomes them into his fold. And yet, in these diverse communities of people who've, who've been called, created, and set apart uh, by God as God's, remember the language of 1 Peter, as God's chosen race, as his royal priesthood, as a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Notice now that in the midst of the diversity, you have this profound unity. You now have a chosen race. You have one royal priesthood, one nation, one people who together belong to God. One people who have been called by the Father and saved by the Son and are empowered by the Spirit to be on mission in the world. And by grace, dear friends, we have come to know this redeeming God, the maker of heaven and earth. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And the one who in the person of the son became a man. And lived and bled and died and rose again to conquer his enemies and to ransom a people for himself. And this same Lord Jesus Christ who now reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. You see, the story of God's mighty deeds has been made known to us. The works of his redemption can be traced. We share the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. And together we are committed to the life that Jesus calls us to. You see, the sort of unity of mind then that Peter has in view is not a, is not a cookie-cutter style of uniformity about everything. Peter isn't saying that all Christians are going to, to think exactly the same thoughts in the same way about absolutely Everything. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. He, he means that we must share a deep structure of beliefs and commitments and aspirations. The fundamental core convictions. People often talk today in terms of one's worldview. Our, our beliefs and convictions about God, about the world, about the gospel. And about the people we are called to be because of the gospel. 
there is a profound unity of mind and heart established with others when you become a Christian. And one of my favorite examples of what this looks like is found in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. If you've gone through membership class here at Trinity, you know I, I love to tell this story. You remember what happens in Acts chapter 16 with Paul and Silas and Philippi? And, and here you have a description of the founding members of the church of Philippi. Who are they? Remember, Paul, Paul makes his way down to the riverside where a group of women are gathered to, to pray. And Paul, Paul preaches the gospel. And we, we read that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe. Who's Lydia? Lydia is a, a Jewish businesswoman, seller of purple goods. We know she must have been a woman of means because she went on to, to help missionaries uh, in their efforts. And leaving the, the riverside, Paul and Silas are traveling around Philippi, and for a time they're, they're being harassed. They're being harassed by a demonized Greek slave girl. And, and I, I chuckle every time I read this story because it reads as though Paul, Paul finally gets fed up with it. <laughs> and he turns around and he, he rebukes this demon in Jesus' name, and this, this poor young girl is delivered which stirs up all kinds of trouble for Paul and Silas because apparently this girl, this demon-possessed girl, earned no small income for her master telling people's fortunes. And so Paul and Silas are drugged before the authorities and they're eventually thrown in prison. And you remember that what's happening that night at midnight, Paul and Silas are singing hymns of praise to God, and there's an earthquake, prison cells begin to break open, and the, the guard, I think is probably a, a, a retired Roman soldier who's just seeking to have an income to take care of his household, he's responsible for these prisoners, and he thinks they've all escaped, he, he's prepared to just run himself through. Better to just kill myself now than to face the consequences until Paul stays his hand and eventually he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Roman soldier, this, this Roman centurion, he, is, he, is, uh, he believes on the Lord Jesus, he's baptized, and his entire household is baptized. Now think about this. Founding members of the Church of Philippi, Jewish businesswoman, Greek slave girl, and this Roman prison guard. And, and ask yourself, where in the Roman Empire would you see those kinds of individuals gathered together, loving one another, caring for one another, sacrificing for one another, and Worshipping the same God. How does that happen? It happens through the gospel. And it happens as together they, they come to share the same faith. They come to know the same God. Now you have a community of people who name each other brother and sister. This is what the gospel does. You see, we always need to be reminded, don't we, not to focus on 
superficial differences to the exclusion or to the relativization of our more profound and essential unity in Jesus Christ. Don't mishear me. There's times to, to make distinctions. And sometimes, sadly, in a fallen world, divisions become necessary. But I think we need to be reminded of Peter's message here. That's why Paul also will say to the church, you know, have, have unity uh, of mind. You, you need to work at this. You need to maintain this. It needs to be preserved and not marginalized. And boy, brothers and sisters, do I think we live in a day when our fundamental unity is at risk of being marginalized by things that at best are secondary issues. So there are other things we need. We need sympathy. That's the second thing Peter has on his list here. Now, I think our, our, I think our English word sympathy is, is perhaps not the most helpful translation here. The Greek word Peter uses, it, it literally means something like a shared passion. A shared love, you could say. So I don't think here Peter is talking about the feelings that we, we have for one another just yet. There's words for that. But he's talking here about a shared love. The church is bound together in a common confession, unity of mind, and a shared object of love. Shared passion for the Lord. And that sympathy, that shared passion for the Lord, I think naturally leads to the next thing Peter says. What we need, we need to have, we need to have brotherly love. Now Peter is describing the relationships among believers in the church with the word Philadelphia. Word that's familiar to us. Peter is saying, we are in fact family. You know, not distantly related cousins who maybe see each other once a year at annual family get-togethers. I had cousins like that that I would see once a year, and the rest of the year I didn't speak to them. I didn't have any knowledge of their existence or what was going on in their lives. No, Peter is saying, you've been brought together in the closest of familial relations as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You need to understand, here's where I want us to think carefully about this. Having brotherly love for one another is not what constitutes our relationship with each other. That's not what Peter is saying here. What he's really saying is that relationship has already been established by God's redeeming grace in your lives. And as a result, you've got to have this. We're to have this brotherly love then because of who we have been made to be In relation to each other, it is the consequence of gospel grace, brotherly love, mutual affection among the family of God. We we therefore can and should look around the room this morning at one another and say in our hearts, these are my people. These are my people, people to love, people to serve, people to uphold, people to look out for. And that's brought out, I think, even more strikingly with Peter's next word, tender-hearted. It's a a Greek word that's actually related to our guts. 
to our bowels because in Peter's world, that, that's, that, that was the, the source of one's emotional life, the seat of one's emotions. It's where it came from. And Paul, uh, Peter is saying it, it, it's not enough to show up occasionally and say some nice things to each other. You have to have a tender heartedness. If I can put it this way, you must allow yourself to be affected in your guts by your brothers and sisters. In other words, responding from your heart to their joys, to their sorrows, and to their needs. Our love for each other in Christ, dear friends, must must go beyond mere recognition and respect. That's basic. Our lives are to be bound together in the bonds of mutual affection within the household of God. And the final quality Peter says we are to have is a humble mind. Be humble in our thinking. Again, what a, what a timely word when we are tempted to have dogmatic opinions about just about everything. Or to be humble in our thoughts. And one of the striking things to notice here is, maybe you didn't know this, that humility was not something that was considered a virtue in Peter's day by most. You know, most philosophers during Peter's time did not identify humility as a virtue worth pursuing. Some, in fact, actually spoke of it as a vice, indicative of weakness. So humility was not something that the larger world aspired to, but it is, Peter is saying, it is a necessary mark of Jesus' people. This is the attitude and, and the habit we are to have toward one another. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Count others more significant than yourself. Count them more important. Be a servant of one another. Be humble. That's Peter's call here. And so that's, that's his summary of, of how we are to live in relation to each other. We are to... We are to have a shared knowledge and love of God who rescued us from sin and death, resulting in brotherly affection, tender-heartedness, and humility among the family of God. It's a challenging, challenging word, but, but let, me, let me start here in, in terms of application. Let me start with a word of encouragement. I can... I can tell you that as, as a pastor here at Trinity, I get, to, I get to talk to a lot of folks who visit the church. And one of the things that makes me uh, smile and thank God is that one of the things I hear again and again as people observe how you relate to one another, I always hear you people really care about each other. Folks at Trinity really love one another, and I think that's right. I think they're right. So despite all of our weaknesses and our deficiencies, we really do care for one another. And so I want to say keep, keep that up and, and remember in 
the divisive days in which we find ourselves living, what it is that actually binds us together. It is our shared confession and love. And that is what produces an entirely countercultural way of life among us that's marked by brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and real deep humility. And let's keep pursuing one another then in this way, recognizing, as I said a minute ago, these are my people, the people I am called to love and the people I am called to serve. And I think as we reflect on Peter's teaching, there is, a, there is a challenge here as well. I think, I think if we're honest for some, perhaps for some of us here today, Peter's description of how Christians live toward one another in the household of faith, for some, this just sounds like pious, idealistic talk. Now that could be for a number of reasons. It, it could be perhaps because for much of your life you have associated with communities of faith that have just, just failed to live up to this calling to be a loving community of disciples. But it's also a possibility that for much of your life, church and relationships with the people of God is something that has always remained a peripheral thing in your life. Something that you have kind of kept at arm's distance, considered an optional extra. You know, you have your family and your friends and those are my people. But the church, well, those are just people I loosely associate with whenever I happen to show up at church. Now, friends, if that sounds anything like where any of you are, I want to ask you, do you see how out of sync that is with Peter's vision for how Christians are to live toward one another? And look, I'm not, I'm not talking here about advanced, super spiritual Christianity this is Christianity 101. This is, this is basic to living the Christian life. To, to be a Christian it means I have been knit together with other Christians. And we show our common knowledge and love for the Lord by the life we live together. And if that's not you, then all I want to say is, friend, it's, it's, it's time to make some important changes in your life. Don't, don't hold God's people at arm's length. God has made you to belong. And all around you are people that you are called to love. So get to know them and find ways to serve them. I recognize there are others here who are in life situations where it's just hard for you to, to be a part of the fellowship of the church as much as you'd like. And, and I say to the rest of us, it's, it's our responsibility of love to be reaching out to them, to be seeking to care for them. And so that's how we're to live toward one another. That's the first thing. Second, let's turn and I promise more briefly here. Let's think about how we are to live toward the world. Take a look at verse 9. Peter shifts to talk about how we relate to the world, particularly a world opposed to followers of Jesus. And he says, do not repay evil for evil 
or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. It's been a major theme thus far in in 1 Peter, suffering for Jesus' sake, being faithful to the gospel and being willing to suffer as a Christian. And here it is again, right? How to respond when people do evil and revile you because of your commitment to Christ. Okay, how, how, how do we respond? Peter says we are not to respond in life. We're, we are not to, to give as we get. But on the contrary, we are to bless. And notice what Peter says, for to this you were called. Okay, think about that last phrase for a minute. Let it sink in. To this you've been called. What is your calling in life, Christian? Well, here's part of the answer. God calls you to be a blessing. You and I are called to bless even those who would revile us for our faith. You know, we might wonder, okay, so what does this mean in practical terms? And I mean, it can mean a thousand different things, can it? Depending on the relationship and the context. But you see the basic Principle here, it means that when someone reviles us for our faith, we do not respond to get back. We respond in order to bless. One of the stories I I read this week and one of the commentaries I read in preparation told the story of a soldier, a Christian man who would pray by his bedside every night. And a fellow soldier would mock him and ridicule him as he prayed And one night while he was praying at his bedside, a pair of muddy boots slapped him in the head. what, What did he do? Well, the next morning, the soldier who threw those muddy boots found his boots by his bedside cleaned and ready for inspection. Yeah, it might seem like a small thing, but isn't that such a wonderful example of what Peter is talking about here? He found a way to respond to reviling with blessing. And we must too. But you might think, okay, that's easier, that's easier said than done, right? Okay. Uh, love each other and bless those who revile you. Easy peasy. No, not so fast. This is, this is hard. This is hard. How do we get there? I think verses 10 through 12 are, are really uh, are, are meant to incentivize this way of life, of loving each other and blessing, living to bless others. As we think here about living toward God in verses 10 through 12, have a look at it. It's here where Peter teaches us a basic principle of the Christian life that I think will help us live out these exhortations. You can see it in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, on the contrary bless... For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You hear what he's saying? Bless, that you may obtain a blessing. There's a principle there. And you can see it again in verse 10, in the supporting quotation that Peter provides from Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good old days, whoever desires the good life, let him keep his tongue from evil, and so on. The principle is there again in verse 12. Seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
You see the underlying principle. I think you could summarize it this way. Pursue blessing by being a blessing. Pursue blessing by being a blessing. In other words, the good life, the blessed life, is marked by, by serving others for Jesus' sake. Pursue a blessing by being a blessing. Now let's, let's think about this. There are some wonderful promises detailed in verses 9 through 12. Just summarize them. We, we can obtain a blessing, verse 9. We can love life and see good old days, verse 10. Good days. We can have the eyes of the Lord on us, verse 12. The, the eye of the Lord, not, not in judgment, but the eye of the Lord in the sense of, sense of his constant care and protection, like like the, the eye of a watchful, loving mother. And verse 12, we can have the ears of the Lord open to our prayers. I mean, these are remarkable promises. Who wouldn't want them in their life? I know I, know I do. So the question is, how, how do we get them? Okay. They are promised, but look closely at the passage. They are conditional promises. We've got, we've got to get this straight. Sometimes Christians latch on to the great truth that salvation is by grace alone. And we're saved through faith alone. And yes, praise God, that is true. There's no room for, for works or merit as, uh, as a work of righteousness in the kingdom of of Jesus, And the only, the only work that God accepts as meritorious is the work of his own righteous son on our behalf. Salvation is by grace alone. But that truth, dear friends, must not be understood to rule out or to exclude promised rewards for conditions met in the Christian life. The Bible contains a lot of conditional promises. I mean, we could list a ton of them here this morning. Just think about Jesus' teaching regarding prayer for a minute. Uh, ask, and you will receive. Knock, and the door will be open to you. What does that presuppose? You hear the conditionality of it. As if you pray, and we could add, pray according to God's will, prayer will be answered. Well, let's just stick with 1 Peter for a second. Uh, one passage, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And you hear what Peter is saying. God exalting you at the proper time is conditioned by us humbling ourselves. Right? There are conditional promises in the Christian life. So, so what is the message? God has, God has saved us by his grace, and, and now that same grace is, is at work within us, both to, to will and to work for God's good pleasure. But that doesn't mean that now that we are the children of God, that we just sit on our laurels and sit back and coast. No, the life he calls us to is not a life of passivity that just happens. It requires grace-enabled effort. It is divinely enabled and sustained effort, but effort nonetheless. 
And so God in his fatherly wisdom and grace has attached promises to to many of his commands in order to motivate his children whom he loves. Now think about it. We, we, We do this as parents, don't we? We give our, our, our children the promise of certain rewards, not to say to them, if you meet this condition, I'll consider you my child. But within the security of that, that loving relationship, desiring something good for your child and wanting to encourage them to get there, you hold something out to them and say, if this, then that. God, our Heavenly Father, one of the ways he seeks to encourage and motivate us in the Christian life is with conditional promises of that nature. That's what Peter says. Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Let me come at this another way. Look at verse 12. After calling us in verses 10 through 11 to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit after commanding that we turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Uh, Verse 12 gives us the promise for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. And with that in mind, just ask yourself, have you ever wondered perhaps why it seems like you're your prayers are constantly just rebounding off the ceiling. I'm assuming this is the explanation, but it's a possible explanation that maybe one reason could be that you have been reviling others when you've been reviled. Maybe you've been repaying evil done to you with evil of your own. See, one reason your prayers aren't heard may just in fact be your anger problem and I think this passage leads us to ask the question is there a possible connection Peter's asking us to ponder between our inability to respond to the provocations of others with a blessing on the one hand and the ineffectiveness of our prayer life as a Christian on the other could it be could it be that you have in fact been repaying evil for evil and reviling for reviling in your home, in your marriage, or even in your workplace. So look, this is the sobering truth Peter is leading us to recognize. You can can have devotions every day. You can be faithful in prayer. You can read through the Bible in a year and be disciplined in those sorts of things. And those are all good things to do. You can come to church and serve. By all accounts, you can be a faithful member in good standing, serving in a local church, and yet your temper and those grudges that you just cannot let go of and your spiteful behavior when someone hurts you, Peter's saying, will still hinder your prayers all along. You see, God has promised to give us his ear if we give ourselves to blessing Others. That's, that's what the text says. So here's the path to the good life. You see it? To this we have been called. Pursue blessing 
by being a blessing. God has a blessedness for his children, happiness and satisfaction with more of Christ in your life, more joy and peace. And we experience it by reflecting the love of God for us in Christ toward others in our lives. And Peter's making that clear that this, this applies both within and outside of the church. And I think, very, very frankly, that likely means that in one way or another, we've, we've all got some repenting to do. Perhaps, perhaps we've compartmentalized our Christian lives, right? We have our devotional life over here, and then we have our interpersonal behavior over here. And we, we, we fail to see, it hasn't occurred to us yet, that to follow Jesus is just as much about how you respond and relate to others as it is about how much Bible you know. So let's allow these conditional promises, friends, to, to, to do their work on our hearts. They are calling us to repentance and a new obedience, to seek a blessing, to seek the good life, to pursue blessedness, by being the blessing to which we have been called in Christ Jesus. May God help us to, to then live the blessed life by, by resolving to follow in the footsteps of our Savior Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return, but sought to bless. May we know in our lives more of his presence, more of his Smile more of his blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that in Christ Jesus and by the work of the Spirit in our lives, you would, you would help us to, to live this way in relation to one another, knowing that we share the faith that has been delivered to us, knowing that we share a common love for you because you first loved us. Let let us have a brotherly affection for one another, a tender-heartedness and humility that's seen in our relations. Help us to bless others when we are reviled, knowing that we live before your sight and that if through this very means you intend to bless your children all the more. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.